Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Canyon and Muckoff, and we've got a lovely discount code coming right up. I've spent the last few weeks on the Canyon Spectral, the CF29 LTD to be more precise. If you're looking for one bike to do everything, then the Spectral should definitely be on your list. Because of its lightweight and well-designed suspension platform, it's an efficient climber that still offers plenty of grip when things get lumpy. Point it downhill though, and the 150mm of travel really comes into its element. This thing likes to go quick. The suspension design seems to be pretty supple and offer great grip, but it also has good support too, allowing you to push into the bike and generate speed. The Spectral is a bike that's definitely put a smile on my face. Canyon have really thought about the design too. It's super neat and tidy with some lovely touches like replaceable thread inserts and super tidy internal cable routing, thanks to feedback from their World Cup and Enduro World Series mechanics. All of these little touches work to make the bike easier to look after and nicer to look at. If you want to find out more, then you can head over to canyon.com. If, like me, you're looking to do what you can to reduce your impact on the planet and to help make sure we can have a healthy environment to ride our bikes in, then you might be interested in Muckoff's Punk Powder. It's their first ever plastic-free bike cleaner, and it means there is 92% less packaging, and it's super light and small, so you're not unnecessarily shipping water around the planet. Punk powder comes in sachets which are compostable and printed with vegetable-based inks. They come in a cardboard sleeve which folds into a handy funnel to pour the contents of the sachet into your aluminium bottle for life. Add a litre of warm water, give it a quick shake and you're ready to go. The cleaner is readily biodegradable and made from plant-based ingredients. I've tried it and it's super easy to mix, it's ready to go in seconds and it works just the same as the already awesome Muckoff Nanotech bike cleaner. It managed to clean some pretty stubborn sheep poo off my bike with ease and it's left it looking great. If you want to try Punk Powder or get your hands on any of the rest of the Muckoff product range, then as a downtime listener, you can get 20% off during the month of September using the code DOWNTIME20 at the checkout over on muck-off.com. That's downtime, all uppercase, followed by the number 20 over on muckoff.com. It's nearly the end of the month, so if you want to top up on cleaning and maintenance products as winter sets in, then don't hang about. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to support the show, you can get your hands on our full range of merch over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. As always, it's top quality, organic, made in a factory using renewable energy and delivered with no single-use plastics. Head over now and check them out. All the proceeds help support and improve the show. Please make sure you're following the podcast on whatever platform you listen. There's probably going to be a button there that says follow or subscribe, so hit that now. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it's available. If you can't find a button, then head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe and there's links there to all the major platforms to help you. All right, this week I'm joined by former downhill world champion and mountain bike legend Lee Donovan. Lee has had an incredible career from BMX through the early days of mountain biking and being at the very top of the game in the mountain bike boom during the 90s. We sat down to chat about the path that Lee has followed. It's not all been plain sailing and there's plenty of ups and downs along the way. We chat about mind games, the toll that high-level racing takes on the body, athlete pay, anxiety, and plenty more. Hear why Lee left the sport, her comeback, and ultimately why Lee chooses bikes. Lee is a rider with tons of wisdom to share and a career that sees her in not one, but three halls of fame. So, without further ado, here's Lee Donovan. Lee Donovan, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Things are great, Chris. Thank you for um, having me. Oh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to getting into one hell of a career. And let's let's start from the very beginning, um, because BMX, I think, was was a big thing for you 
before the mountain bike side of things came along. What was it that, uh, that attracted you to BMX? Both my grandparents live near the BMX track. And, uh, I grew up on a street with all boys. Like we had two girls and we lived on this big, long street and boys would always be riding BMX bikes. And, you know, I, I had like a banana seat bike. I just, I loved riding my bicycle, but no, I never knew BMX existed. And one day my cousin got her driver's license and she drove me over to the BMX track. And, um, cause I was like, what's that thing with lights? It looks so cool over there. I just want to check it out. I've always wanted to go there. And so my cousin's like, well, let's go over there. And we pull up and it's, it's a BMX track. And instantly I was just, I, it just, I was just drawn to it. I, I just said, I have to do that. And I remember even getting a paper from the registration and I said, I brought it home and I told my parents, I'm like, I want to do this. And this was, I don't know, I was 11. I think I had just turned 11 and, um, it was in the winter and my dad's like, not a chance. You're like not doing that. And um, I really made it my mission. Um, at the time I was in fifth grade. And at the time I just made it my mission that I wanted to do that. And so I convinced four of the boys on my street to start racing BMX. And, um, and they all would take me out to the track. And eventually I could go ride one of their bikes. I didn't have a BMX bike. And I think my dad realized when I went into sixth grade, he's like, yeah, you really are pretty serious about this. I mean, you got the four boys on the street racing BMX. And, um, and so I got a bike in, I want to say it was like October. We got it at a, uh, at a, um, I don't know what you guys call it, but, um, like when people sell stuff out of their house, a garage sale. Um, uh, so my grandma was a big garage sailor and, uh, one of the boys actually that lived near the BMX track was selling his power light with these, uh, uh, mag rims and it was super cool. It was blue and yellow and he was selling his bell helmet. And I was like, okay, I want that. Um, and so we bought it from him. My dad said, yes, I could, I could go out and race. And, uh, and that was, I mean, that was like one of the greatest days of my life getting my BMX bike. And then the second greatest day was going out and racing it. I just, I fell in love with bikes that moment in my life. And, um, and I can't believe I'm turning 50 in December and I'm still just so in love with my bicycle. That's incredible, isn't it? How, how did it feel then that first race and how did you get on? Um, I did good. You know, back in those days, girls racing was pretty significant. There was a lot of girls racing and, um, and I think Orange County really, the, I think the Orange Y BMX track really did a great job, um, promoting BMX racing. Um, so I, I don't really even remember my result. I know I won a trophy. Um, so I, I won a trophy. I remember winning a trophy and then, um, but within a few months, I raced my first, uh, I, they used to call them world championships, USBA or something like that. US forget what it was called. It was like a obscure, um, race, race series. And it was in Los Angeles and I won and it was like, you're world champion. And, um, and I was like, Oh, that's so silly. I mean, you know, <laughs> but my, re- my first real national, my first ABA, which now is USA BMX, my first real national in the um, 11, 12 girls class in January of 1983, 83, I think it was 83. Um, I won my first national I ever went to, I won. Whoa. And, um, 
And I will never forget it because I raced for a bike shop called Pedal Power. They were my local bike shop. And Rob Lynch was the owner. And Rob was at the finish line. And he had three levels on his team. He had the A level, the B level, and the C level. And I would, I had worked my way up to the C level, the B level, and it was awesome. I got, you know, some support. He paid my entry at the race, but the A level, you got free clothes and he would take you to some races. And um, I came across the finish line and I won. And I remember Rob standing there and he's like, you're on the A team. (laughs) (laughs) And I tell you, that was pretty, that was a pretty awesome moment. Yeah. Yeah. So the BMX career went from strength to strength then you really, you really were kind of working your way up the rungs and, and taking lots of wins at, at a very high level, right? Yeah, I think what ended up happening was I did have all that experience riding with the boys on the street. Um, you know, I would get boys to like teach me how to like go over, you know, curbs and we would sprint around. So I was already having the experience of racing a little bit without racing, you know, kind of working on skills. And so I think, um, inevitably I was kind of ready and I knew what to expect, but that was definitely another level. I mean, there was lots of girls that I raised that were factory team riders from all over the country. I mean, I, you know, so it was a real proud moment for me. And that year was a, that was a great year for me of racing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And was it, am I right in thinking a knee injury that kind of put an end to the the BMX career? Well, I did have a knee injury and it was actually early on in my career. It's funny. We, I was just, Brian Lopes just turned 50 and, uh, we were having, uh, we had a big party for him and a bunch of old school mountain bikers were there and we were talking about it. And, um, right before the grand nationals, my second year of racing, um, I always race the boys like after, and I mean, I love racing girls too, but for me, it was like, I always wanted to be as fast as the boys. And this guy, Todd Steen, he didn't mean to such a sweetheart. He stayed and everything, but I was 13 and racing the 13, 14 open class at the time. And he just came inside of me at the second left at orange and just slid into me and just took me out. And, um, that knee injury probably kept me in cycling to be perfectly honest it always made athletics a little bit more difficult even today it still still makes it difficult but um i think because cycling was a little easier on my knee versus running because a lot of people don't know but i was a pretty i was a pretty good runner and i owned all, i had all the like in middle school i had all the records for um uh for the 800 and, uh, and we had, um, we had a runner that came through here that was like a gold medalist in the Olympics that also ran the 800. And so I beat all her records and I just, that's what I thought I would be. I always thought I would be a runner at the Olympics running the 800. That was like my dream as a kid. And, um, and the knee injury definitely just stopped that completely. Uh, uh-huh. what, what was it then that sort of took you away from, from BMX? It was just that once you were, you know, there wasn't a lot of room for girls, to, um, to go past, you know, being amateurs, there wasn't pro class at the time. Um, I mean, there definitely wasn't this world cup, you know, level racing at the time. I mean, you know, men, men's professionals, they had, um, they had all of like the opportunity. They had the pro a, a pro and double a pro, and that was all great for them. But 
they didn't have anything for women. And for me, I was just like, okay, well, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to do something else. I never in my lifetime thought I would race bikes as a professional and a different bike. And I think, um, gosh, I'm just so grateful to mountain biking because I felt like in a way I was forced to stop racing BMX because there just was really nowhere for me to go. I mean, what do you just keep paying your way to go to all these races? And I mean, that just didn't make sense to me. Um, so, uh, yeah. And then I got to actually be a professional athlete and I had no idea I actually even wanted to be that because that was never possible. I just never could see that possibility before. And, um, yeah, super grateful that in a way BMX didn't have that, that transition for me, because for me, I think I'm definitely a mountain biker at heart and I love the outdoors. I love the ability to, um, ride new terrain all the time. So Mm -hmm. mountain biking definitely is, that's my, that's my place. (laughs) Was it it hard to kind of, when you, when you stopped the BMX racing, accepting that there wasn't really that, I guess, like career path there, was it hard to, to admit, did you miss the racing, the adrenaline? Like there was a bit of a gap, I guess, between the BMX and the mountain biking. Yeah. Um, very much so. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know that I, uh, even when I raced BMX, I had, um, I had a little, little, uh, I I had a lot of family issues going on and school Uh issues. And I got really into drugs. And when I was 16, I went through drug rehab. And, um, and so, you know, BMX definitely helped me through, you know, getting sober and having, you know, a little more clarity in my life. Uh But, um, I, uh, when I, when I left BMX, I definitely had a lot of depression I, at the time, you know, I didn't really even know people didn't talk about that, you know, whereas today it's so nice. We can talk about anxiety and we can talk about depression. Um, but I remember telling my mom and, you know, she'd be so mad if she heard this, but she said, um, I said, I think I'm depressed. And she's like, never tell a doctor that because if you tell a doctor that they'll drop you from your insurance. And she, my mom works in the medical industry. And so that was like taboo. You never said you were depressed. And it's true. I mean, if back in the day, now we have measures in place here in America where they can't drop you for that. Now it's something that we can actually discuss openly, which is wonderful. Um, but at the time I couldn't do that. And, uh, and, and, you know, I didn't really know how to deal with that. And honestly, I tell people often mountain biking really saved my life. It gave me, um, the, uh, opportunity to kind of find myself and, uh, and the friendships I have and just, you know, be me. And, yeah. uh, but still I needed the adrenaline and the energy of others. That's, that really is who I am. I need to be surrounded by people. Um, and so even today I notice sometimes my, my job is a little lonely. Sometimes I do a lot of it by myself and I'm like, Oh, I'm kind of down today. I'm going to go out and be around people. Yeah. Interesting. And it was some of those people that you met through BMX that I think helped start driving you towards mountain biking. Was it Brian Lopes that, that took you along to your first mountain bike race? Um, I'm trying to think of Brian. I think Brian and I did go to our first cross country race together um, it was actually Dave Cullinan who kind of made mountain biking, um, 
something a lot of us BMX riders looked at. John Tomac was obviously the same, you know, and then Dave Cullinan. So those were the two BMX riders that I think, you know, Tinker Juarez, those were people that were really kind of giving us a little bit of like, oh, hey, check out mountain biking. These guys are doing it. Um, and then Brian and I have just always been good friends. I mean, I've been friends with Brian for 38 years. I met him when I was 11. He had just turned 12. And um, and we've just been friends. Our parents are good friends. And uh, so Brian and I, I we... We, he was definitely more interested in mountain biking than I was because he was fit and he could pedal uphill. And at the time, cross country was really more of like what you saw. And I just thought personally, cross country sucked. Um, but I did it just so I could ride downhills. And, you know, uh, obviously now fast forward to 2021, I mean, there's chairlifts and like a dream. I mean, if I would have started mountain biking now, it would have been a dream. I could have gone all over the world and I could have ridden way more downhill. It would have been awesome. But at the time, you know, you had to really work hard to find a downhill, figure out how to shuttle, who could shuttle. Mountain biking was a lot more difficult for downhillers back in my day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And w- am I right in thinking your first downhill race was uh, Kamikaze at Mammoth? <laughs> yes. Under under a little bit of uh, not pressure, but like your neighbor, I think, helped you. Yes. Get to that, so and they had like na- some kind of link with Harrow, was it? Yes. Yeah, so um, my neighbor Colleen, um, she, her husband Dave, they would be like the people that would pick colors for some of the bike companies, uh, Mantis cycles was one Haro was another. And, um, so they were good friends with Richard Cunningham Uh and they were good friends with, uh, Brad Lusky and Dean Bradley from Haro. And Colleen was always a big fan of mine. She was so sweet. And, um, I had, I I was kind of struggling. She could tell. And, uh, she's like, you should try mountain biking. And I'm like, well, I ride, you know, I've got some, you know, muddy Fox bike. And that was my first mountain bike. And, um, and so, but it wasn't, you know, wasn't anything amazing. It was just a regular mountain bike. And she's like, well, I'm going to hook you up with my buddies at Haro. And she did Dean and, um, and Brad, they gave me a frame and gave me some parts and, uh, we had a, a pedal power, I think, helped me put the bike together and I bought some parts and um, yeah, my sister drove and she, my sister had a really cool Jeep. We took the top off and we drove up to Mammoth together and Haro even gave my sister and I the um, the master bedroom to stay at, which was, I thought so cool because we stayed there with the team racers and um, everybody was just so nice to us. And, uh, that's how I started. I remember going to registration and I had never raced at that, an event like that. And, um, Haro, Haro was like, you should probably race expert because you know, you're pretty good. And I'm like, how do you even know I'm good? I've never even done this. And they're like, well, you're a good BMXer. So it's probably going to translate. Look at, you know, Dave Colinan and John Tomac. So I was like, okay, I'll sign up as expert. So I signed up as expert. And well, that year experts raced with the pros. So they, it was called expert pro class. And so your time was combined with the expert, like with the pros and also in the dual slalom, you race the pros. So you didn't have like your own expert dual slalom, you raced expert pro dual slalom. So, um, I mean, I just remember, first of all, the track is so gnarly. I don't really like speed like that. And I was on a full, I was, I was on a total hardtail bike and, um, it was just, the whole thing was so wild, the crashes, 
but it was racing the dual slalom. I did good. I think I got like top 20 in the downhill. Um, but like, I was like, I'm never doing that again. That was horrible. <laughs> um, but the dual slalom, I ended up making it to the round of four and I went head to head for third place with Missy Giovi and I beat her. And that, that moment is where people recognize me as this girl could be something. And that's when Haro sent me to the the national championships, like four weeks later, where I also got in the, I ended up getting fourth in the dual song. I don't remember what happened in the downhill, but like at that time I was like, Oh, I'll race dual song. That's super cool. But that really wasn't how the sport worked. It was downhill first and then dual song second. And, um, it took me a little while to really, I would say embrace downhill because I was pretty scared of it. Um, and now we know later, 95, my whole life changed. I won the downhill world championships, won the national championships, won the dual song national championships. And um, from then on, the pressure became, you've got to be great at downhill because you've been downhill world champion now. And that's when kind of things shifted for me with my career. Uh-huh. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, that was 92, I think, when you raced the kamikaze and yes. beat Missy in that slalom. <laughs> yeah. So ni- 93, you picked up a deal with Iron Horse. And I was uh, fascinated to hear quite how bad that deal was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know who you heard it from, but uh, my, I, uh, my deal was they did pay for me to go to all the races which okay, was awesome. Not so right? bad I mean, then. they paid for me to go to all the races. Um, and I, no matter how my results were, I, my, my cap on my bonuses was $2,000. So if I won every race that season, I would have capped out after like four races. So, um, so it was like, you know, $500 for first, $300 for second, $100 for third. Well, by the fourth or third, fourth race, I was racing two events. I raced dual slalom and downhill, and I actually did have good results. I won a lot of the downhills. I mean, the dual slaloms that year. Um, so, I mean, by like the, I think it was by the sixth race, my cap was done. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, I, I lived on my credit card actually, so I could eat. Um, I lived in Durango. I rented a room from somebody. So I would pull cash out on my card. I had like a $3,500 max, which was thank goodness, at least I had that much money. And I just remember I finished that season pretty successfully. I, I want to say I got top five in the downhill and I got top three in the dual slalom. I think I got second in the dual slalom overall or something that year. I'm pretty sure it was second overall. And um, I went to work literally like the next day I got home from the race. I got a job at this place in Durango called Starve and Arvins. And I was a waitress. and um, and it was, you know, it was funny because I just thought nothing of it. That's all I've ever done. I've just worked. And, um, and then I was serving a guy in the bar. It was like my first day by myself on a shift at Starvin Arvin's. I made $2 and 11 cents an hour. And, uh, the guy had this big map and it was out on the table and, uh, he was looking for mountain biking trails. And when he looked up and he saw me, he goes, you're Lee Donovan. And I was like, what? I mean, just tripped me out so big. I mean, like it was, I was so blown away. And he's like, could you sign my map? And I signed his map and I was, I was kind of horrified that he knew who I was in a way, because 
at the time I was young and I felt like, you know, people shouldn't know who I am being, I'm serving them. And, um, and it really actually bothered me enough to where I, I ended up subleasing my, my, at the time, then I got into an apartment. I was subleasing my apartment to somebody else. And I moved back home to my parents' house. Cause I just didn't, I didn't like that somebody recognized me at my work. Interesting. And that <laughs> it was, it was because you, you sort of, you were working for them at that point sort of thing. Yeah, I was serving and, them. And so yeah. I didn't want to be elevated because that wasn't the position I was in. I was in a serving. I just, it was, that's how I thought as a young person. Uh-huh. And to be honest, I'm still a little bit like that. I like being a bit more of an invisible. Um, I'm not the type of person that really loves the attention. Um, I, I, which I love winning and I, I love, I, I love, I love being uh, appreciated for the hard work I have done and the change I have made, but I necess- I don't necessarily love like real physical attention. Um, I just never have liked that with even fans. I mean, I love my fans and people are amazing to me, but when people elevate me like that in person, it does make me uncomfortable. Interesting. Yeah. That's a tricky one to deal with then, isn't it? When you're passionate about doing what you do and you do so well at it, it's inevitable that recognition is going to come, but then that, that is almost a detractor for you from the whole thing, or do you, do you find ways to deal with it? It definitely is. I mean, I remember once I won the world, the downhill world championships, um, all of a sudden I was actually somebody important. Before that, I was kind of more like, you're a dual slalom rider that does pretty decent in downhills. But I had never won a downhill at that level before. And all of a sudden, now people want to put me on their magazine covers and they want to come to my house and interview me and take photos with my gold medal. And um, I, I, that was really hard for me, um, really hard. Uh, and I, I will say, definitely, I got used to I built relationships with these people, the media, the photographers, I I built relationships and over time it became more comfortable. But at the beginning, I wasn't used to that. You know, we, we, we didn't do a lot of photos at my house and I just wasn't exposed to that. And so it took me a while, took me years actually to really, even Mongoose did media training for us because so many of us sucked at it. <laughs> and, and they're like, you guys suck at this and you're all really good. I mean, all of us, the BMX freestyle guys, you know, the mountain bikers, it was, it was like, we were sitting in this room and even though I remember the lady teaching us, she was like, wow, you guys suck at this. And we're like, yeah, we're, we just ride bikes. We don't know how to talk to media. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of learning and growing as uh as the, as media became more prevalent in cycling too. Yeah, true. Yeah. We were at a period where the, the amount of media that was expected of you, I guess, was going up and up by the year, wasn't it? With the arrival of the internet and, and nowadays the pressure on, on the top riders must be insane from everyone wanting a little piece of them. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I feel sorry for a lot of the riders that I'm sure a lot of them enjoy sharing, but it's, it's like in our contracts, right? You have to share so many times a month and you've got to mention this hashtag and this at, and it's like, okay, I get it. You pay us money to represent your brand. I totally get that. But on the flip side, let us do it authentically because if we're doing it authentically, then it's going to 
mean more to our fans, to the people that respect us. And sometimes I feel like, you know, some writers are great like that. They're so authentic and I just love it. And then there are writers, you can tell it's very forced for them. They're not super great at the social social media side. So they feel like, oh, I've got to show my, 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 the bar I'm eating today or, oh yeah. You know, I'm like, or the box that came in the mail. And I'm like, that is a forced photo. Don't do that. Do it when you're out riding. Like I love my pivot socks. So I'm like, I'm riding my pivot socks. I literally love my pivot socks. They are the best socks I've ever ridden in. And so it's like easy authentically to share that, but it's not authentic to share something that just came in my box and said, Oh, look at my new XTR drivetrain just came in the box. You know, why, why do I love it? Those sort of things. And I think, I think our companies should support us in that and come with cameras and, you know, interview us during the year and then let us use those clips during the year to share about the things that we love. I don't think that should be on the athlete. The athlete works so hard to be great. Like I just, you know, I watched Miriam Nicole and she's, she's just so rad. And, but I think of how hard she works to be that rad. You know, I've seen many her working her butt off, whether she's riding moto in the gym. I mean, the lady works so freaking hard. And then she's required to talk, do social media posts. I just, I, I think it's fine if she authentically wants to do it, but it yeah, shouldn't feel, and none of it should feel forced for an athlete. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky, it is a tricky thing for them. Let's, let's, um, yeah, catch back up a bit on, on <laughs> Sorry. your career. So, no, no, it's good. So, 93. 2000 kind of max bonus with iron horse <laughs> from there and getting good results right and then you move on to diamondback i think in 94 and that was a that was a really big team back then right definitely that had dave Collinan on it um david weens who now is the head at imba um his wife uh, susan d matey who was uh the bronze medalist at the 96 games the first mountain bike games in atlanta georgia um, and, uh, we had Darren, um, Henderson, he was out of New Zealand, a downhiller at the time. And, oh my God, he's going to kill me. I I'm totally blanking. Um, he's an East coast mountain biker. Oh my gosh. Um, and he's so rad. I can't even believe I'm forgetting his name right now, but, um, I, I haven't talked to him in so long, but anyway, so we had this team, uh, of pretty much stellar rock stars and, um, I was definitely not at that level for everything. I still had a job. Um, I, I, I didn't know how to train. Uh, I just knew nothing about racing at the time. And I got put in this team that was just mega professionals. That must've felt quite a lot of pressure, I guess, at that point, because you're, you're, they're looking at you to perform alongside these people are, I guess, are essentially like people you're lo really looking up to. Definitely. And I think, I think at the time, you know, Iron Horse was really fun. We had a fun, I mean, we were like really a downhill team with one cross country rider. We had five downhillers and then we had Mark Gullickson, who was a cross country racer. And so we, we had fun. <laughs> I mean, we laughed all the time. We had meals together. We were like a, what a team is like today, like a downhill team. That's what we were in 93. That didn't even exist anywhere. We were the only team like that. And then I went to this very serious team ran by Keith Ketterer, and he was also super serious. And he still is like, I mean, I don't even know how old he is, but he's got to be, he's probably in, in his 60s. And the dude is still a badass uh, 
roadie, competitive guy. Um, and so I just was around a lot of com- com- competitive people. And I was just trying to hang on for dear life. I didn't know what to do, how to eat. Um, I bought a book called, um, oh, what was it called? Eat to Win, because I was a little bit overweight. And um, I dropped 18 pounds before that season, which was a huge mistake. Whoa. I lost all my power. But because my team was so fit, I thought I needed to be fit. I just didn't know anything at the time. And um, and I think that that's what made that year so difficult for me. And by the end of that year, I still had some great results. But um, I ended up getting third at my, at my first World Cup um, in uh, Germany. Um, I had some, I did have some great results that year. I got a chance to race Cap Die in France. I mean, I got, I got a lot of exposure on the team, which was amazing. Uh-huh. Um, but I think honestly, I just didn't have fun and it felt just, it felt forced the whole year. Um, and by the end of that year, uh, I was, it would look like I was going to go to team GT, which I was excited about. And Stickman was going to go to team GT. And I was like, that was the dream team. I, my whole life, I always, even BMX, I always wanted to race for GT. So it was like just an ultimate dream for me. I was so excited. And then that, um, then after they had led me on, that ended up not happening either. And then I was left with nothing. So in they offer stick a place, they as did, a mechanic, yeah. but, but not you as a rider <laughs> yeah. or something. That's yeah. horrific. So you it two are a, a couple at this point, right? Yes. Yes. We were a couple at that point. Um, it was a really, um, it really made me question, um, the sport and the way I was treated and handled and I get business a hundred percent, but you don't tell a kid that they're going to be on your team and then with a handshake and then all of a sudden say, Oh no, sorry, we can't make it work for you. And you just don't, I just don't, I just don't think that's professional. I would never do that to anyone. um, but regardless, it happened to me. Um, I do think I was fortunate that it did happen because I got on this mongoose program with Brian and Stickman. And, um, we had four amazing years together and it changed my whole life. I don't think GT, GT, I'm sure I would have been successful on. Um, but I don't think I would have been as successful as I was on mongoose. Yeah. Was Mongoose the first time you worked with a coach? Yes. Um, I stick, um, I don't know. I I think I've told the story before, but Stickman introduced me, um, to this, uh, man, Jason and Jason put me in touch with this Latvian coach, Valentin (laughs) Sungutulin and Val, as we called him. Um, I met Val at, uh, the track in Dominguez Hills here in Los Angeles. And, uh, Jason handed me Val's, um, I met Val, I thought he was cool, um, but Jason handed me his resume in a, a, like a, a, a vanilla envelope and, um, and he, he handed it to me and he said, if you choose to work with Val, you will be what's on the other side of this envelope. So on the front side, it said my name, Lee. And when I flipped it over, it said world champion. <laughs> and like I kind of laughed like, yeah, right. I'm going to be freaking world champion. Um, but whatever, um, it did make me interested. And so I met with Val and, uh, I said, okay, I, I'm going to work and Val worked me. 
I had to get a road bike. I don't know. I, I think, I don't even think I had, yeah, I, I don't even know if I had a road bike yet. I don't think I did. And um, I mean, that's all I did. I just rode road miles all the time. Val was a, a, a an Olympic track coach for Latvia. So he really understood how to be powerful. And he trained me to be powerful. And he got my mind ready. He taught me how to do self-hypnosis. He taught me things that nobody was doing. And um, and then eventually, you know, he worked with Eric Carter and Mercedes Gonzalez and Pete Longkarovich and um, I probably Rich Hausman, probably plenty of other writers worked with Val over the years. Um, but without Val, I would have never really understood the structure and the commitment to training um, that he instilled in me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously coming into that world champs in 95, I think it was in Kirchgarten in Germany, you're probably in the best condition you've ever been in, I guess, as a result of of working with Val and putting in all the hard graft. But tell us a little bit about this self-hypnosis side of things. What kind of stuff were you doing there? Because like you said, I don't think many riders were working on the mind side of things at that point. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of anxiety. I know now as an adult, I'm like, wow, I've always had a crazy amount of anxiety. People would used to say, oh, that's ner- you're nervous. I'm like, if this is what nervous is, wow. I mean, I was like way above that. I couldn't sleep the night before races. Um, I mean, I still, even today, I have a lot of anxiety. Like we have this new puppy at home and I'm like, always like, is it crying? Does it want to come out of its crate? Like I have, I just, that is me. I just, that's who I am. Uh And, um, and so Val really taught me how to control that. Um, and he used self-hypnosis, like a weight training block. He would say, okay, you're going to give it six weeks. And so, um, I used it at the beginning. He didn't believe you could do it all the time. It wasn't like something you could do self-hypnosis all the time because you really do, your mind gets into a place that is ultra-focused. Uh-huh. Like your mind, it's hard for your mind to live there all the time. But so he would teach me how to do it. And then he would say, okay, what are our goals? How do we want to, how do we want to attack the season? Well, of course, one of your goals is always to win world champs. <laughs> so you're you're going to set up a six-week block to do self-hypnosis before that. So around that end of six weeks, that's when you're racing. And so I did one at the beginning of the season. And um, and I thought it worked pretty good. Um, but I didn't really notice a huge... Di- I, I couldn't have told you what was good about it or what was not. I did feel more focused, but I didn't notice... I didn't notice any like zone Uh when I won the world championships, I was in such a zone. It was just mind blowing the tunnel vision you have and how slow racing became for me. I saw things so much more vividly and more easily. Um, and I do believe that's why I won. And I did win by a significant margin. I know Anne Caroline didn't race that race. Um, but I do believe had she raced in the conditions we raced in, which were slippery conditions that morning, I do believe I would have beat Anne that day too. Yeah. So you were nine seconds up on the rest of the field. But so Anne Carey was in juniors at that point. Yes, Is that right? And at that she the, wanted to race in elites. But she should have peeled. been able she should have been able to race in elites, but she was not of age yet. She wasn't 18. Right. 
And um, I didn't even know that. I just thought she was going to be coming down and that was who I was expecting to come down behind me, but that didn't happen. Um, and then the juniors at that time raced after elites. And so it had rained that, that night before. So the track was pretty slippery. And the ironic thing was back in the day, we didn't get to pre-ride the course. So you just showed up and you raced the downhill. We didn't go like practice runs before our race. That's how downhilling was for years. You race day, you just took the chairlift up, you warmed up at the top and you just hit the trail blind. And, um, and, and I mean, it was scary. And, uh, so we didn't get to do pre-runs or anything on practice that, that day. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, so we didn't know it was, I, I remember walking to the first turn. I got up, I'm like, I'm an early, like I'm early for everything. And the shuttle system, I was late, but I knew I had to go look at the first turn to like determine how I was going to approach the corner because it had just rained and I didn't know how I was going to take it. And, um, I had backed up and there was, it was like on a farm and I got electrocuted by one of the animal fences. I hit my elbow on it full, like gnarly too, like full body jolt and everything. And sometimes I think maybe it was because of that. I won, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I just remember inspecting the dirt and all of us kind of looking at the corner and going, Oh, okay. It doesn't look too bad, but you could tell the roots were still pretty slippery. So it's just funny to think now how riders, you know, they do so many more runs than we did back in the day. Um, So they just have to be stronger, really. I just tell every writer I have ever worked with that works down, rides down. I'm like, just be really good at push-ups. Do lots of push-ups. <laughs> yeah, get yourself out of jail free card that if you're exactly. good at it. Exactly. So there, there was a bit of mind games going on at the top of the course as well. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, you've done your research, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was pretty new to international racing anyways. And I looked up to these riders so much. I had raced international races, but I was definitely not at their level as far as experience went. And Giovanna Bonazzi, she, I don't even know if she was trying to play head games with me, but you know, I was on V breaks if, and most of the riders were on disc brakes. Uh-huh. Uh, most of the riders had better bikes than Brian and I were riding on Mongoose at the time. Just, um, we had the Nikolai, we were riding the Nikolai bike. Um, so Carl Nikolai had come out and he built some downhill bikes for Brian and I and Mongoose basically bought the designs and we produced this downhill bike. Carl really produced the, the bikes. And it was, uh, it was just funny how Giovanna just thought it was nothing to say to me. Are you happy with that bike? Like, do you like that bike while I'm, you know, getting in line to race the downhill? And I just thought that was so rude. I, I, I mean, I don't, and, and she didn't say it like she couldn't even speak English at the time. Now she can speak English. She's amazing. I just love her. But at the time she didn't speak good English. So I totally could have misunderstood what she meant too, but it really pissed me off. I was, and I'm not that kind of person like that, um, gets mad at my competitors. But again, that's another thing I think that drove me to say, I'm going to kick your ass. And that was not in me at the time. I did not have downhill confidence. Um, so it's just funny how little, little digs like that. Some sometimes can hurt a competitor, but I think in that case, of course, nobody ever expected me to win that race ever. Um, and so I think that fueled me a little bit. Yeah, I've heard I've heard a couple of instances of of like people trying to mess with you actually being flipped to like positive energy for you to then go and 
beat them or to do well in the event. And I was going to ask, like you've mentioned on a couple of occasions that you suffer from anxiety at points. So I guess if someone's trying to mess with you, sometimes that's the anxiety part of your brain can kind of kick in. How is it that you that you deal with that, or how is it you think you manage to 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 take the positive energy from something like that rather than going inside yourself and and getting into that downward spiral? Well, I think in downhill, um, I of course it is so mental, right? It's such a mental aspect. But I'm never I'm not racing these people. I'm only racing myself. And the longer I race downhill, um, the more I realize that towards the end of my career, I'm like, I can't control what people can play head games with me. Um, I don't think towards the end of my, I don't really think towards the end of my career, uh, I had too many head game issues happening. Um, like a Katrina Miller, she would do a lot of head games for the, the duel. She was a big head gamer. Um, Tara Giannis at the time, she liked to play a lot of head games. Um, and so in the duel, I experienced a lot more of that. But um, I think in those cases, I just knew where I stood and I wanted to beat them. And if they beat me, I knew they're good. I, they're good. Um, but like Tara, for instance, she was like an arch enemy with me with racing, especially towards the end of my career. I don't even know what happened between us and we're friends now, but during the end of my career, we were not friends. And, um, and she just had zero respect for me. And that pissed me off because I had respect for everybody that came behind that gate. I, I wanted to still beat you. Of course I wanted to beat you. Nobody shows up. To, if you show up to the line and you don't want to win, just walk away because you're <laughs> clearly not competitive enough to race and ever right. be a champion just walk away. Don't have dreams of being something you're not because every time you roll up to the start, you should want to win. That should be your ultimate goal. And at the end, it should at least have hopefully done the best you could. Um, and so the people that didn't respect me and they gave head games to me, those were the people I wanted to kick their ass so much more. Interesting. So yeah, I guess the rivalry for, for jewel is very different to the rivalry for downhill, isn't it? Cause it's, it's physical. You're against the other person. It, you can't like you, you can't end up taking each other out. It's yeah, absolutely. I mean, even at my last race at the World Championships, uh, I was in third place, and Tara just took me out right in the corner, and you know she ended up getting third, and I got fourth. That was my last professional duel I ever raced in my life, and um, and that really upset me. That was super disrespectful. My last race of my whole life. And she just took me out, plain and simple, just took me out. And she knew that she was going to crash me. Um, and again, I love Tara. And that is racing. People do that all the time. But at the moment, I did not like Tara. <laughs> <laughs> love it. And so you're in this boom era, I guess, of mountain biking, like late 90s. You've got a world championship downhill medal. You've got numerous successes in dual. I'm guessing the salaries have improved a little bit from maxing out at $2,000, right? Yes. So um, in 95, Mongoose was so uh, generous to me. Um, They gave me, I think it was like $25,000 salary and an incredible bonus program. I ended up maxing my bonus program out. It was $50,000 max, which is a lot. 
I ended up maxing out my bonus program before the world championships in 95. And um, Bob Markovicus, he was the president at the time of, of Mongoose. Um, when I won the world championships, he just gave me my world championships bonus. And it was $25,000. Nice um, so I did very well that year with prize money. God, I mean, I probably made a couple hundred thousand dollars that year. Um, and uh, maybe pretty close to that. Uh-huh. And, and then Bob was so great because I had a two-year deal. So I was going to get paid 25 in 95. And then I was going to get paid 20, 30, I think, in, in, 20, in 96. And same kind of deal. And Bob was like, you know what? We're just going to give you another two-year deal contract. We're going to rip up that two-year deal. And we're going to start you at $75,000. Whoa. And then I got these two salaries, 75. And then 80, I think, was like the next year. But bigger bonus package. I mean, Bob was super generous to us because he felt we deserved it. We worked hard. And um, I feel like I wish more people were like that in the sport today because I feel like, you know, athletes only have a small window to be great. I mean, we're not all Greg Menards, right? (laughs) (laughs) So we only have a small window. Maybe it's a 10-year span of racing that we have in us. And we put our bodies through hell. I mean, and we have to invest in ourselves. I mean, I was getting a massage every Monday. Um, I had I paid a, a trainer $10,000 a year to train me. Um, I was, you know, eating well. Uh, I needed health insurance. I had injuries. So I'd always be in physical therapy. I mean, I was, I was spending so much money to keep my body healthy. Mm-hmm. And you know what's sad? I still do that today. I still spend about $500 a month on my body because I have so many aches and pains. And without acupuncture and physical therapy, I'm really, I'm in pain a lot. So it's, it's a long-term investment being an athlete way past your career. And I don't think a lot of sponsors really understand what we put our bodies through. We are basically professional football players or in your, you know, I don't know what you call it in your country, but American um, football, yeah, American football. We are American football players. And every week we're just destroying ourselves. Even the people that don't crash, their bodies are still getting hammered out there from racing downhill. Um, and so I, I'm a, such an advocate to take care of our athletes better. Um, and, uh, I mean, hopefully that's happening on some teams and uh, hopefully they'll lead by example for new teams that come through. Yeah, fingers crossed. And how were those salaries comparing to the sort of your your male equivalents at that point? Was it was there much parity there or? I, I mean, I'm sure that the ma- men were making significantly more money than us. Uh-huh. I mean, at the time, Brian probably made 25% more than I made even though I was downhill world champion. Um, so I, you know, I never thought negatively of that. I mean, shoot, I was making so much money. I mean, I, I just a kid of a truck driver and uh, a, how, a, a housewife that went back to college and became something of herself, my mom. But I mean, I was, I just, I'm a kid from simple means and that I could buy my first house at 23 years old and pay cash for a car. I mean, that was insane. I mean, Today, that would be insane. I'm 50. I can't pay cash for a car right now. And so I just, I mean, 
I wasn't going to complain either, right? We had equal prize money. Um, equal prize money was very appreciated. And we definitely didn't have the depth of field. But mm-hmm. I do feel like we had amazing competitors and colorful competitors, like a Missy Giovi, who transcended many genres for our sport. And Sean Palmer's, right? Like those people elevated our sport to new media levels that never had existed before. So and 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 really Missy was the one who who really originally started that. Yeah, it was a colorful time for sure. And you um I think your your mongoose years came to an end in 98 I think they had a buyout which uh, which meant that you didn't have a ride for 99. But obviously you were very keen to continue and make something happen and you managed to create yourself an opportunity with Jeff Steber at Intense I think. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, I had hoped to stay with Mongoose, but that didn't end up happening. And, um, I was kind of left high and dry because I kind of put all my eggs in one basket with Mongoose. I was like, well, I've been there for four years. They're not going to let me go. Well, they did. (laughs) And, um, and then I had nothing, but I luckily had great relationships with, uh, I had great relationship with Jeff Sieber at Intense and I was already riding an Intense. I'd already been on an Intense for two years. So, um, it wasn't going to be any, any big of a deal for me to make that change over into, um, to writing with intense again. So I was like, that's a natural progression. Go to intense. I want to be on Shimano because that's who I've been with. I want to be with, uh, Manitou. I think I, I think I originally wanted to be with Rock Shocks, but I think that couldn't happen. So, uh, Manitou ended up happening. Um, and, uh, and they're like, I mean, people were so generous. Uh, Shimano paid me $20,000. Manitou paid me $20,000. Jeff Steber said that could pay me $50,000. So now all of a sudden I have $90,000, right? I got to get myself to races and stuff. So what I ended up doing was I ended up telling Jeff, let's you take all the money in. You take the $20,000 from Shimano. You take the 20,000. Let's create a team. Let's get people on this. Um, Then you guys pay me X amount of dollars, like a percentage. So I ended up giving them 25% of everything I brought in and then they paid me the rest. It was awesome. And then I funded all my international travel myself. You know, if I wanted a, a swan year there, I funded that. So at the end of the year, I actually didn't make that much money. I spent and invested a ton of money um, in that race season. But it's so awesome to see even still today, Jeff still has a team. I mean, that was 22 years ago and Jeff still has a race team. And I just, I'm proud of that because I feel like I was a big part of that, um, building those relationships with those, uh, those brands. And, um, and yeah, and then I was the, I spent the last two years, uh, with Schwinn and that really, um, that was, that was more initially based. I needed to make some money. I couldn't just race for $20,000 a year. I just, that, that didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so then, uh, Jeff had a great little thing going out intense and he totally got it. He knew he couldn't fund, he couldn't get, make me money. Like the money I, I, he couldn't pay me the money I needed to be making. I felt yeah. that I, sh- I deserved to be making and Schwinn could. So I went to Schwinn and, um, it was a great team. They brought Stickman on. Um, so I got to, I wasn't planning on retiring. In 2000, when I signed with Schwinn, but I had a lot of injuries that year. And um, I finished the season with a, 
I had ripped the ligaments off of one ankle uh, at Mount Snow um, earlier the year. So I suffered my whole season, at least half of my season with so many injuries. It cracked my pubic bone, tore my groin. I just had all these injuries because one injury, one major injury, if you keep trying to race through it, turns into another and another. (laughs) And I just... I felt like I had to race through all those injuries. And in the last race, I finally started feeling good, had a horrible crash in mammoth, tore the ligaments on my other ankle, spent four months in physical therapy. I couldn't walk very well. And that was when I decided 2001 is going to be my last year. I just, I, this was a lot of work to stay healthy and I just can't do it again. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal on the body, isn't it? And it doesn't get any easier. The more injuries you get, it doesn't get any easier to recover, does it? Yeah. And I just, I didn't know what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Right. I wanted to be able to walk. That was the one thing. I think the ankle things, you know, when you jack your ankles up like that, you start questioning, can I walk again? Well, am I, how's my body going to respond? Cause you need your ankles to have a good body. <laughs> you need your ankles to walk well. And, um, and so that really, that I never had many injuries during my career. So that 2000, those injuries were so significant. It made me think about my future. Like I wanted to have kids and I wanted to have, do something else too. I didn't, I didn't just want to be a bike racer. I don't, you know, for most people, they'd look at my career like, oh, you raced for 10 years or whatever. I'm like, but I raced BMX for seven years before that. So while I did have a small break between BMX and mountain biking, I really spent, raced my mountain bike for 17 years when I turned 30 years old. That's a lot of, it's over half of my life I had been racing at that point. Yeah, it's incredible. And I guess a natural move for a lot of retiring racers is to to pick up a role somewhere within the bike industry, but that, that didn't happen. Tell us a bit about like what you did after retiring from racing. Well, I will tell you, I tried to work in the bike industry and Mavic Mavic was going to hire me to do their sports marketing. And I was very excited about it. Um, And I even, the second I got home from Vail, Colorado, from the world championships, I even signed up at the local college and I was taking a conversation French class. Um, I was just so excited for that, that opportunity. Um, that ended up not happening again. Another one of those things people tell you, um, and, uh, and that was really, that was super frustrating because I really expected that to happen. I had been with Mavic, um, you know, I I was racing their wheels. Um, I loved, I love athletes anyways, especially mountain bike athletes. That's just as my people. Um, so I just thought that would be my, my transition as well. Well, that didn't happen. I did get a, a little opportunity to write with uh, Mountain Bike Action. Zap, uh, Zap gave me a little article that I got to do some writing with that. Just wasn't my thing. Um, and I had already been spending a few years working at a local flower shop. Because um, I knew at some point I was going to retire. And I knew that I wanted to make something of myself doing something else. And I wanted to do what I loved. Mountain biking, I loved. Um, so I needed to do something I loved and, uh, I was a customer at this flower shop. Anyways, I was going to try to buy the flower shop from her. That didn't happen. So long story short, I was doing sports marketing for Hanson's beverage company, which wow. at the time was energy. Now it's monster. Um, and I was in the room when the monster can was chosen 
I was in the room when that green M was picked. We voted on a green or a blue or a red. And the majority of them voted for green. I did not. And <laughs> and look at how popular the green monster drink is today. So, yeah, uh, yes. And I think, God, I should have stayed there. I'd be a millionaire <laughs> if I just would have kept those stocks. But I'm just not very smart like that, I guess. Um, and so, uh, and I was working, um, we were working a, a, a like a co-op program with uh, Spy Sunglasses at the time. And Jennifer Gabrielli, who now was at Intense. Um, Jen uh, was my like co-partner. Uh, and we were just staying in a hotel in Las Vegas at the SIA trade show. And Jen's like, wouldn't it be fun to own a clothing boutique? And I never even had thought about owning a clothing boutique, to be honest. I just knew I was interested in retail. And, um, and I said, let's do it. Like, that's simple. February of 2002, we just said, let's make it happen. Stick and Jeff flew out, drove out the next day to Las Vegas. We went to dinner and to a Circus Olay show. And by the next day, we were going to all start this clothing boutique. And we opened our store July 11th. No, yeah, July, no, July 18th, uh -huh. 2003. So a year and a half later, almost like less than a year and a half later, our store opened to sales. And this was um, a tangerine, right? Tangerine, yes. Took us forever um, to figure out a name. And at the time, Chris Kavarik was dating um, this wonderful girl. And she is the one who came up with the name for our store. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. And, um, and so Tangerine, it was Tangerine Clothing Boutique. And I'll tell you, knew nothing about um, fashion, nothing. Um, liked fashion, always had respect for it, but didn't know brands or anything like uh -huh. that. And I took a job making $9.25 an hour at the mall store that just had opened up, that was opening up at Express. And I learned so much about how to run a corporate retail store. And I, I, had I not done that, I don't know if our store would have been as successful initially. Um, yeah, and it was just fun. Um, I mean, it was freaking hard work. I had no idea. Um, but we had amazing customers. Um, it was so cool. You could see fashion way before it hit the stores. So I knew it was trending six months before anybody else knew, you know, and the, the, you know, anybody. That, so it was kind of neat and you could kind of pick and choose how you wanted to dress your customers. And once you got to know your customers, it's keep it, it's probably like a bike shop. Once you know who your customer is, the second a bike rolls in the store, you're like, oh, I know Joe is going <laughs> to want that bike, you know? And so it's, I just, I think that was a really, it was really neat and empowering. I mean, to be a bike racer, to open this, and we were a very successful store. We did over $2 million in sales for five of the eight years we were in store. Whoa. And, um, and just, we had an amazing team of employees uh, and I was always around men. So I was always around women. Um, so I grew up a lot. I became more, I like to say, I became more of an adult, I, a grown up in that situation. I'm still like, I'm still like a teenage boy with bikes, but, um, I learned to be a little bit mature through the store. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So did you, did you kind of fall out of love a little bit with bikes through that period or were you still riding? Like how was your relationship with mountain biking? I think the sad thing is, is that I was pretty angry at the bike industry for not making room for me. Uh -huh. Um, 
I thought I was a pretty valuable person um, that the industry just let walk away. And I don't think the industry um, appreciated what I had done. Um, and I think it just made me pissed, to be perfectly honest. And um, and so I, while I still did love riding my bike, I did it very little because I didn't have time to ride. And I mean, soon after I started the store in 2003, um, two years later, I had my daughter um, at Grace. She was born August 31st, 2005. And, um, and then my life was just so busy. You know, I remember buying a, like a city bike that had a, a, a child seat on it, which I had never even ridden a city bike before, but you know, the mountain bikes, you couldn't put a seat on a mountain bike. So, um, so we, we bought that and we'd ride our bikes. We were like, you know, just regular people riding bikes. I wasn't shredding downhills or anything like that. Um, but I definitely stayed in touch. I mean, Stick was still an avid fan of mountain biking. He would still go on, you know, all these rooms and talk, you know, the shit talkers and all these people. And he would always tell me what's happening because, you know, Stick, you know, he, if you know my husband, you know, he loves all that stuff. <laughs> Except for when it's about him, I I know now with him being at Troy Lee Designs, he gets a lot of a lot of crap thrown his way sometimes, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that kind of hurts." I'm like, "Yeah, I know. Remember back in the day, sticks and stones. Yeah, you." <laughs> I I almost left him over sticks and stones actually because really, well, he affected a lot of my my friendships, especially with the women. But I think you know he just was trying to say, "I'm just saying it like it is," but the reality is is that some stuff he said was really hurtful. Uh And I think there's times where, um, you know, to say nothing is better than to say something. Yeah. Yeah. Fair play. I didn't realize that. Yeah. It was quite a controversial website back in its day. That's for sure. Yeah. More controversial than anything now. Yeah. He doesn't tell people, but he really stopped it because of me and don't hate on me fans, but, um, (laughs) I'm not, I don't do well when people don't like me. Uh Um, like, yeah, my competitors. Okay. If you don't like me, whatever, but regular people, I think I'm a pretty nice person. Um, you, you, you get what you see. I'm, I don't have a telephone voice. I'm definitely not fake. Um, but I'm a good person. And so when people don't like me, I always think, God, that pisses me off. And, you know, it was hurtful when he would say things about people I really respected. Um, and, and it hurt them. And I understood, I was like, that's not okay. You can't hurt people like that. So yeah, yeah. saved our marriage. We have been married for 21 years. So <laughs> happy days. So yeah. So you, you've sort of stepped away a little bit from biking, probably still getting yes. out and about on a bike, but not loads. You've become a parent, which I have fairly recently. And I started to understand how, uh, time consuming that can be. You're oh, running yeah. a busy fashion retail store. You've been retired a while, and then you decide you want to go and race world champs. <laughs> well, now, I've heard I've heard you call this your midlife crisis, but tell <laughs> us a bit about it. Well, our store. So this was 2010, 2009. Um, I I did race a little bit. So starting in 2006, um, we started going to Whistler for our summer vacations. Um, not really just to go to Crankworks. We just happened to be up there when Crankworks happened the first time we went up. 
And we fell in love with it. Of course, I got to see everybody. Um, I got to ride bikes with people. I raced a dual slalom. Wasn't even planning on racing the first dual, that dual slalom. It was like 2006. And Grace was just, you know, she was not even one years old. I remember singing like, um, uh, girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes. I was like, I, I, I love sound of music. And um, so I was remember rocking her to sleep before my, between my races, racing dual slalom in 2006. <laughs> Um, you know, I was just racing for fun. Um, but I loved Old Slalom. And so that was that kind of started to pique my interest back into just riding Dual Slalom, really. And um, so every year after that I would race Dual Slalom. So in 2006, seven, eight, nine. In 2009, the track, the Dual Slalom was this like kind of giant big dual slalom. They had huge jumps on it. I hadn't really ridden stuff like that. Um and so none of the girls wanted to jump the jump. Long story short, I ended up hitting this jump, case the shit out of it, but I did it. And, um, and then we were having fun. The girls were laughing and then Jill's hitting it. And then all the girls are jumping in. Jill was so stoked. She's like, I'm so glad you did that. Cause I didn't want to, I wasn't going to jump it. And we were all like rad. And so Jill said, you should race again. We miss you. You make it so much more fun. And she just piqued my interest. And I was going through a really hard time. Uh, our sales were slipping every month at the store, you know, economy was tough. Uh Um, it was just a really tough time. And I had never been in that business situation before. And so I do call it my midlife crisis because I didn't feel good about myself. Um, I felt like I was failing at my business. I felt like I was always, I always have felt like I'm failing at parenting because it's just like literally the hardest thing I've ever done. And I am not natural at, um, I'm not natural with patience um, and you need to have a shit ton of those. And you also have to be natural at doing nothing um, and, and playing like playing games and, you know, playing dolls and doing tea and being very still. Like Mm -hmm. you have to be good at being still sitting and doing, I'm not, that's just not who I am. I can't sit still. And so I've, I mean, even to this day, I still struggle with parenting. It's just the hardest thing. And I mean, I look at people with envy that just make it so natural for them. Um, but, uh, okay. I forgot where I was at now. (laughs) (laughs) Decided you're going to race world champs. Oh yeah. So then I said, okay, I, I told stick, I go, Hey, I kind of maybe want to race world champs next year. It's at Mount St. Anne killer course. Like I love Mount St. Anne. And, um, and he's like, no, not a chance. Are you racing world champs downhill? And I go, okay, what can I do? Cause I, I never worked out. Never. I didn't ride my bike. I did nothing. I mean, I worked, you know, I wasn't super fit and sticks. Like if you could train 20 hours a week, a month, 20 hours a month for the next three months, then I'll agree to it. So that was it. I, I, I worked out five hours a week and did my 20 hours every month. And at the end of the three months, he said, okay. And at the time he was working at intense, I think, yeah, he was getting ready to, I think he was at intense and, um, and he said, okay, I'll agree. You can, you can race. And that was it. And intense sponsored me. Um, I, at the time Fox, I wrote Fox clothing cause, uh, uh, Mike Redding, ironically, he went to Fox, but I, uh, but before that he was at Troy Lee designs and Mike Redding went and sponsored me at Troy Lee designs, which I thought was so funny. So I ended up going to Fox and Giro and I mean, nobody paid me money or anything, but intense did, um, help me with some of my, uh, entries and some of my, um, uh-huh. travel. 
And yeah, it was so fun. I raced a bunch. I had this, I had, unfortunately, I had this horrible, um, like tennis elbow injury all year. And um, that really affected me. I feel like winning. I feel like I could have won races. I mean, maybe not world champs, but I feel like I could have been more competitive if I wouldn't have had that injury. Um, but you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, it was more at the end of the day, it brought me back to bikes, no matter what the results are. You know, I got eighth at world champs that year. I was the first American. Um, I, Rachel Atherton was in seventh. I remember sitting on the podium with her and Jill and Grace was in my lap. I have that podium picture still. I just love it because I mean, Jill is someone I've just, I've seen grow through mountain biking and she's just, I think, a phenomenal bike rider. And Rachel at the time was somebody who was just kicking ass. And I couldn't believe I was sitting, 38-year-old woman turning 39 that year. And I'm sitting on the podium with these amazing athletes. And, um, and it was cool because at that moment, I was like, you're good. You are a good racer. You don't ever have to prove anything to anyone else. If you want to race, cool. If you don't, that's cool too. And it was that moment, that race at Mount St. Anne that made me actually recognize that I was good. I don't, I think I always questioned it before that, which is insane, but I feel like I just never knew I was really that good. It felt like I had to prove myself. Yeah, mad, isn't it? That it, that it took you until that 38 year old reflection sat there to, to feel that way about yourself. Yeah, it was, I I think athletes are so hard on themselves anyways. Um, We're definitely our worst enemy for sure. And, um, and I think women in general are just brutal to themselves. Um, And, you know, I was no different. I was a woman and I was an athlete. So um, it just took me a long time to recognize that I was good and I am good. (laughs) Awesome. That's good to, yeah, it's good to hear you say that. So had your approach to risk change much by then? Cause you're a bit older, you've become a parent. I mean, back in the day, when you were racing kind of mid to late nineties concussion was just a, a bit of a thing that got in the way and you'd probably be pushed to crack on with it. But I oh. guess the understanding of that was starting to come in. Like, how did you feel attacking Mons and Anne? Because it's, it's a gnarly track. Well, I think that you Mount St. Anne was, it was gnarly, but I had, I just felt comfortable on that mountain. I just, it wouldn't matter what you threw at me. There's just something about that mountain that, I mean, maybe another lifetime I lived there or something. I don't know. It's just weird. It's like when I, there's many places I've gone and just struggled. Um, Mount St. Anne was just no matter, even if I did bad, it was just, I just enjoyed riding there so much. And I do think that's a real mountain bike course. Like I ended up working so hard to be a great downhiller because it did not come naturally to me at the beginning that I just fell in love with natural terrain. The Mm -hmm. gnarlier it got, um, that the better. And, you know, to be honest, I hated tracks that had like these man-made drop-offs and um, jumps on them. I hated tracks like that. It's funny because you would think as a BMX rider, I would probably prefer more man-made stuff. But um, so Mount St. Anne just was just natural. So I could, it was just, it was just easier for me to wrap my head around. And it was gnarly. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was gnarly. 
but for whatever reason, I'm just comfortable there. And, um, and I knew that no matter what the track was that I could ride it. Third play, eighth place. Got to be happy with that. I hear, I hear you're quite, uh, quite OCD as I, I am as well a little bit. Um, (laughs) do you find that helped or hindered with your racing or a bit of both? Um, no, I don't think it, I don't think it hurt. I think it only helped because I was always very organized. I always had my helmet, you know, um, I always, I, I, I knew where everything was the night before I would always lay my kid out. Um, you know, I'd always make sure I had multiple goggles, multiple, you know, gloves. I think being that way was fine. I think it was actually helpful. I think the negative to being that way is that my partner is super far from being <laughs> OCD and Stickman is he leaves his stuff around everywhere. Um, and so I think that uh, that makes it more difficult when you're, you, you know, when as a racer, when like you're going, dude, pick up your shit. I don't want to have to do that for you. And so that was a negative being OCD because, you know, the person I'm sharing my housing with or whatever, um, it would, that would, that would be a struggle. Funny enough, at the end of my career in 2000 and 2001, I was on team Schwinn and I could not stay with Stickman at any of the races because the athletes had their own housing and the staff had their own housing. So even though I was married to stick, stick and I never stayed together at any of the races um, unless we got our own place together, which only happened a few times. And honestly, I think that helped me because <laughs> I didn't have to deal with his stuff. And, um, and I did in 2001, I really did have, I had a phenomenal, even though people could look at my downhill results, I had a lot of mechanicals that year. We were testing a bunch of products that year. Um, so people don't really know the story why, you know, certain results, I didn't win those races or whatever, but that year, I just felt so good and comfortable on my bike. And, um, and I knew I would probably never have a year like that. And I had already made the decision to retire anyways, but it was funny. Like that mindset of just being like, I'm retiring. This is my last year. It it took a lot of stress off of me. I didn't need to worry about sponsorship. I didn't have to worry about the future. I just was like, just race your bike. It was cool. Yeah, that is cool. And as a result of all of this, it's ended you in three halls of fame, I think. I think you're the only <laughs> athlete to be in the BMX Hall of Fame, the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame, and the USA Bicycling Hall of Fame. That must feel pretty good. It's 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 pretty crazy. I mean, it's awesome. And I know they're inducting us, the 2020 induction ceremony is going now in November 6th. Um, in Colorado Springs this year. So um, that'll be a really neat, um, that'll be a neat thing to be in the U.S. Uh, Bicycling Hall of Fame as well. And yeah, it's just a huge honor to be recognized at that level. And, um, you know, today I give so much of myself to bikes. Um, I don't post a lot of it on social media. I, I really suck at that, actually. Um, but I really care about making people or helping people become better, safer riders. And, um, and I think that, uh, it's neat to now be part of history in these hall of fames, um, because hopefully over time, the, the love I have for 
mountain biking, specifically mountain biking, but cycling in general, um, will be infected. I call it infecting the virus into other people. And um, so that, that, that recognition means a lot to me. That's awesome. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about I Choose Bikes. So it feels like world champs and that whole, uh, it's a very cheesy word, but I'm going to say closure. Like you've, you found, you found your, you, that you felt good about yourself within the sport and that you felt that you were good at it. Um, got you back into the bike world. I think you worked for Interbike for a little bit and then you started I Choose Bikes. So tell us a little bit like about that and how it came about and what you're, what you're looking to achieve or are achieving with it. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, um, I, I I heard your podcast with Ollie Morris. I think that was like your last one. Maybe you did. Was that your last one? Yeah, this one? week. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and he's just, he speaks my language and you don't meet a lot of people that speak your language. And so I've thoroughly enjoyed that podcast because the stuff he's talking about is exactly the stuff that I do. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and there's not a lot of coaches that I think totally get it like Ollie does. And, um, and so I choose bikes really was born out of crazy enough. I was getting my hair done at a hair salon and the, the, they don't know I'm a mountain biker that the lady, just some random hairdresser I went to, and they are sitting next to this woman sitting next to me. And she's talking about her vacation to mammoth and how she went mountain biking and how horrible that sport is, how she crashed and they hired a trainer to take them up on the hill and what a terrible experience she had. It's so dangerous. And I mean, just spewing hate towards mountain biking. Now I say nothing the whole time, but I remember coming out of that going, whoa, we have to get better at leaving more positive impressions on these people that go to these ski resorts. Um, that they're not walking away with misinformation, bad experiences. And that really piqued my interest in how do I help, how do I help make that change? Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize, you know, I'm one person. I choose bikes as just a small little entity. (laughs) Um, But, you know, that was in 2013 that this idea happened. In 2014, my idea launched, I choose bikes. And, um, you know, my name was just, people were like, oh, what is it? And I and just like, see, in my life, I had the opportunity to choose fashion or bikes. And at one point I chose fashion. Now I'm choosing bikes. So I choose bikes is because I chose bikes. And I think a lot of people choose bikes. You know, people have a lot of opportunities. They could go play tennis. They can go play soccer. They can go do many sports, but most of us choose bikes. And so, um, it's, it's, it, it maybe it sounds cheesy or whatever, but I choose bikes is why I wanted to, that's, I was, I want to choose bikes. And, um, you know, I've had the chance to, I think, meet and, and work with thousands of individuals. And, you know, I work with riders all the way from beginner to, well, I've coached the, you know, U.S. national team at world champs in Mount St. Anne in 2019. Um, so I've worked with a large variety of riders and, um, I just, I introduce foundational skills to riders, just like Ollie was talking about the boring stuff, I call it, but the most important stuff. I teach riders how to become pilots because most of them are passengers. And, and I just, and I just teach them how to use maneuvers. I mean, skill-based, skill-based riding 
and apply them to maneuvers. Um, so, and, you know, I've grown as a coach. It's funny. I was just through COVID. Oh my gosh. I look at the beginning of COVID. I used to go to events and I used to work with people at events all the time. With COVID, I've had to completely change my business and become more of an individual instructor. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's so interesting how I have evolved as an instructor. I am such a better instructor because of COVID, because I've had so many one-on-one um, sessions. Um, I just, I have a whole new way I teach than I ever taught before. And um, I, I notice I have a much, I have a lot more success with my writers today than I even did a year ago. That's awesome. It's good to hear good things coming out of COVID as well. Yeah, something good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Good. And you, you work with school kids as well, right? I work with all ages. Um, so I have, I don't do a ton of youth um, clinics, but I do have my high school mountain bike team that I run. So um, NICA, National Interscholastic uh, Cycling Association here in America, has um, high school clubs all over the country. And um, I help run um, a local club here, actually at the high school my mom graduated from. I, my daughter does, my daughter's into art, so she goes to an art school. But um, the local high school, uh, we have an awesome mountain bike club. Our team's called Team El Medina High School. And um, we have about, about eight coaches and about, well, this year we'll probably have about 20 to 22 riders. So awesome. Do they, do they know your background or is it kind of in, in the past enough that they don't, they're not aware of what you've done yeah. in, in the past? The current writers, um, I mean, when I met them all, they knew nothing about me. Um, you know, but of course, like we're all, we're all interested. Well, how come she rides so good? How come this old lady can ride so well? So of course, you know, piques their interest and they've definitely Googled me. Um, but like the new writers, it's interesting when I meet new writers. I mean, they don't know who I am. I'm just some mom, right? Like that's what I am. And um, but you know, they'll they'll learn to know who I am when we go out and ride. And you know, they're like, "Holy crap!" Like I'm not riding that. <laughs> I'm like, "Well, I am." <laughs> it must be really rewarding though to be able to help all these people just get to a point where riding is more fun for them, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I remember um, when I was in college. Every um, every year, you, they required us to take a test to see what career path we should take. So the first year I take it, it says, number one, you should be a social worker. I'm like, I don't want to be a social worker. Number two year, you should be a social worker. I don't want to be a social worker. And when I just went back to school in 2013, I took a test again. Number one. I should be a social worker. Is that crazy? And it just makes me real. I'm just, that's the kind of person I am. I just must have the compassion. I must have some type of, I must have something in me that wants to make people's lives better. I mean, clearly I do. Cause that's, yeah. I mean, inevitably I should have been a social worker, <laughs> but so I'm kind of applying my, my, those, that, I guess that feeling to mountain biking and I'm trying to make people better mountain bikers for their life. You know, like my kids are like, oh, I want to be a shredder. Or I want to be this. And I'm like, dude, slow your roll. Like grow slowly. I tell all my kids, grow slow. Don't try to be something you're not today. If you slowly work your way into greatness, 
you're going to be great forever. But if you keep breaking yourself at the beginning, you're probably not going to have, well, you're not going to have any longevity in the sport for one. And for two, you're going to be suffering your whole life because of those injuries. It, you don't need to be great today. I don't care what age you are. If you start mountain biking at 20 and you're like, I want to be a pro downhiller. Cool. But don't make it happen today. Work on your skills. Learn how to be great. Work your way up to that. Don't try to be something you're not. Wise words, indeed. I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I hear uh, I have reliable information um, from someone you might know quite well that you're still a very passionate race fan and uh, like to get quite loud and animated whilst watching the race. <laughs> <laughs> what what do you think to the current state of of downhill and then i guess particularly to the women's scene both in racing and outside of it i love it i am a i set my alarm to watch these races on the weekends and um you know the men's racing is something like sticks always like oh i'm just going to sleep in for the men and i'll rewatch the women's you know he'll he used to say that before valley got into the to the uh, mix. Okay. <laughs> but, um, but I'm like, F that man, I'm getting up and watching the chicks and, uh, you know, Oh my God, the women's racing is just, it's just amazing. And I've always known that it's possible, but the women just haven't been given the support. And, you know, I, I, I would always, I I've talked with many people that are team managers or whatever. And I'm like, why don't you have a woman on your team? Like, why aren't you doing that? And, um, and a lot of people, they're like, well, there's just nobody that's fast enough. I'm like, do you know what it takes to be a freaking great downhill rider? The risk that you have to take, there has to be some reward with that. And if there's no reward, chicks are smart. Sorry, guys. I love you. But guys are less smart than women most of the time when it comes to racing. And they'll do shit for free. Chicks are smart. They're not going to break themselves for that. And I just love seeing that these women are kicking ass, growing the, the, the depth of the field. Um, now it's like, you know, when they change it, when it's 15 chicks qualify, you know, which I still personally think is insane. I think at least 20 girls should qualify. I think it's bullshit. Um, pisses me off actually that they changed it to that. Mm -hmm. But I will say when I see my girls out there, you know, qualifying, they're like, I'm fucking badass. Like I made top 15 and it just, I'm just so proud. I just, I love women's racing. And I mean, men's racing, it's, it's always been good. It's always going to be good. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, yes, I'm very animated. I'm constantly like, Oh, he's up. I always set markers for myself for the writers. So like, I don't necessarily go off of the time I'll know. Okay. When they hit that jump, he's at, he's at 21.07, like 20. I, I know like, okay, he's there. So I know, Oh, like when Greg was riding, I was like, Oh my God, you know, he's, he's here. Oh my God. And sticks like, shut up. I just want to watch the race. <laughs> and like when Reese, Reese Wilson was going down, I was like, Oh my God, he's going to freaking smash that time because I didn't think anybody could do the time Greg did. I thought they would do like was 29 or something. So I'm super into times. I always am a time person and I'll always like go, okay, I think the time can be this. And I'm pretty much within one or two seconds every single time for the race. And that's before the men go. 
Like I'll go, I think they're going to do this. Same with chicks. I think they'll do this. And like Miriam Nicole at that last race, and she went like three seconds faster than I thought the fastest woman would go. Cause yeah, I think that's, was... she, she was, she was incredible. And, yeah. um, I just love, I love racing. <laughs> I just love it. I should be a team manager. I just freaking love it so much. <laughs> that would be awesome. I think you'd be good at it. Get, get involved. That'd be, that'd be cool. What about outside of racing then? Do you, do you feel like the women's side of the sport is progressing well? It sort of feels like it's getting a lot more attention and investment than it ever has, but it's still a long way away from kind of being equal in size to the men's side. Yeah. I mean, it's great everywhere. I see more women riding bikes. Um, I feel like women have completely been invited to mountain biking. And, um, and I think that's the first step. Um, I think that it can be better and it needs to be better. Um, but it, it needs to be better everywhere. It's just not bikes. It needs to be better ever. Our industry needs to recognize we need more women in it and we need to prioritize that when we are doing our hiring. Um, uh, women, more women in our industry are going to equal more women out on the trails. More women out on the trails means we're going to have a deeper field of racers at the races. I mean, it just all transcends from the industry. The industry is going to need to complete. And I think they are trying, but you know, it takes, you know, it takes a while to build something, but if, if they're not working on building it, then it's never going to happen. And I, I, I put that off to the industry. The industry needs to step it up first. And even like what I do for a living, I'm sure there's men coaches out there. You know, I get paid little salaries for my sponsors and I'm sure there's plenty of men coaches out there that do what I do. And I bet you they make way more money than I do from the sponsors and shame on the sponsors for that. You know, whatever. I, I take what I can get because I do what I love. And um, when you do what you love, they say you don't work a day. I work a lot, but... <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't know how that happens. I still work a lot. Um, but I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> but at least I do what I love and I'm around people that I enjoy inspiring. But I think that the industry is headed in the right direction, but I think they have a, a ways to go. Yeah. Yeah. Fair comment. And as a, as a woman who came back to the sport as a mum and raced uh, again at, at very high level what what do you think to Rachel Atherton planning to come back to to compete at the highest level after recently giving birth it's a question I asked Tracy Mosley and uh, be keen to get your thoughts well I think absolutely I mean she's one of the greatest the sport has ever seen um I think that you're almost more driven um because I know I raced as a mom. My daughter turned five years old at the world championships that I raced at when I was 38. And um, I just think it's totally possible if you are dedicated to it and you have the right support around you. I hardly even had any like support, but um, but Stick was a huge support, my husband. And that made made all the difference in the world for sure. But my daughter was there cheering with me and I know that, um, I know Rachel, absolutely. If she wants to make it happen, she will. And she'll, she'll be back on the podium again. I mean, I have no doubt. Is motherhood hard? Absolutely. Um, it is definitely the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. Um, I struggle. I have a 16 year old now and I still struggle with parenting and doing it because 
women tend to take on the larger portion of the role, right? They grocery shop, they meal plan, they talk to teachers, they schedule health appointments, um, you know, they buy clothes for the kids. I mean, it's an, an it never ends. Um, but is it possible to come back after having a baby? Absolutely. I mean, when I raced Regina Stiefel, yeah, probably don't even maybe even know who she is. She was for sure the hottest mountain biker ever out of Germany. I mean, she is like so sexy. And, um, and she had two daughters when I raced her and she was kick ass. So children don't stop you from being kick ass. I mean, your age may, your age may stop you, but Rachel's, I think still kind of young. How yeah, old she's is she? 30 or something, maybe. Oh, God. She's a so baby. She's got, she's got yeah. a whole other career ahead of her. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I look forward to seeing it. All right. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. So we're going to hit our final four questions. But before we do that, I want to get your thoughts on what you think mountain biking is doing well at and what you think it could do better at. Okay. Well, I think mountain biking is doing awesome at putting races on television. Um, thank you, Red Bull TV for that and anybody else who's doing that. Uh, because as a diehard fan of downhill mountain biking specifically, but now as cross country has gotten so exciting, I watch cross country now too. Um, yeah, it's good, isn't I, it? Oh, it's amazing. Um, I just am so appreciative that with mountain biking, I, I, that's what I'm saying. We we have we're able to watch and view and get to know the riders. I just think they're doing mountain bike. That is phenomenal. And yep. what could be better? Um, I think that we could have more product. <laughs> I know <laughs> today we need more product. I mean, even as an ambassador of a of a company, I just got an email that I can't get something for 12 to 18 months, and I'm like, well, I mean. Yeah, I'm not going to sell my bike, but if I need that part, that would suck. <laughs> so we need we, we, we need better avenues of uh, uh, of product, you know, allocation or whatever. But um, at the end of the day, I do think cycling in general is seems to be very strong worldwide. Um, but I will say we need to make sure education becomes more and more valued. We all are. We're all part of this world where we graduate from our high school or whatever we call it around the world, and they we're supposed to go to college. But in mountain biking, we just don't put a lot of emphasis on education still. And without people being properly educated on their mountain bike and how to ride it and use gears and how to set up their suspension and pump up their tires and all that stuff, we're going to lose riders again. And, you know, inevitably our sport will kind of start to shift away when the gyms open up and other, you know, sporting things happen. We need to capture these, these riders that have come here, keep them safe, teach them how to ride safely and um, grow this industry, continue to grow it. Like we, it's such, it's the greatest, in my opinion, it's every, everybody says this about whatever sport they're in cycling and mountain biking specifically is just the greatest sport in the world. I'm not going to argue with that. Where do you think the, <laughs> the onus is for for driving that education? I think it needs to start with um, companies. Companies need to, um, you know, bike companies. They need to every bike company not have an ambassador program like I'm part of ambassador programs. I'm an educator. I have a PhD in mountain biking, 
And I just, you know, I, I, I should be the teacher. You should like pivot. They should hire me to run an education platform there. And I oversee all the, I, maybe I pick at the beginning, we say, we're going to pick five educators and we're going to have them. And then we're going to pay them money and we're, they're going to work for pivot. And we're going to go and are, we're going to impact these areas. Every company could do that. They could hire somebody to run these programs to push education. And I know like, you know, I, I, they're, they're, they're a competitor of my Shimano, but Saramd has this amazing women's program they do. And, um, and they've been doing that forever because of Rebecca Rush. And I just applaud people that actually at the headquarters have an education program in place because without people being educated, knowing how to do things in person, really, it's an in-person thing. We can watch videos. I can watch GMBN all day long, but at the end of the day, I still don't know how to do this, right? Because I need somebody to explain it to me. And even like listening to Ollie, when you were doing that, he's just like, again, I, I totally get what he's saying. It's just little subtle things like you experienced when you took the class with Ollie. It, it guaranteed, not only maybe you're going to be faster from that, great, but you're going to be safer because he sh- told you, yeah, you're real toe heavy there, which makes you hand heavy, which makes you front heavy, right? So if you just relax that heel down just a little bit, all of a sudden now you've put traction on that rear tire and now look at the balance you have. Whoa. And those little subtle things that educators do are so valuable and important to growing our industry. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you on that for sure. Right. Let's hit up these final four. Okay. And you're going to know these. So you might already oh, have some answers, I, I guess. I never listened to this part. <laughs> so I don't know them. <laughs> oh, here we go then. All I have right. no clue what you're going to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> if I, first, the first one, if our listeners had 150 pounds or 200 US dollars to improve their performance on a bike, what would you say they should go and spend it on? And I'm going to say you can't say coaching. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say that. Um, well, I think the number one thing any rider should ever have on their bike is a seat dropper. So if you can buy a seat dropper for $150, which probably you can, and you don't have it, I I would never ride my bike without a seat dropper ever. Yeah. Best invention for a long time. I think in the mountain bike world. All right. Second question. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give her? Oh God. (laughs) Um, I would tell her you are not a loser <laughs> because I, I'm going to be a little emotional, but at 16 years old, I was a real piece of work and I was super lost in my life. And um, I honestly, I mean, the fact that I'm on a podcast is something that's phenomenal, but that I'm in these hall of fames or I've been world champion or whatever. I mean, at 16, that would have never been even a thought in my mind. Yeah. So trust, trust that things will go well, I guess. Like, yeah, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna get to do the things you've dreamed of, but you're actually going to do them. I mean, wow. And I'm doing them. I'm still doing them. It's amazing. It's cool, isn't it? All right. Third question. If you could have a coaching session with anyone past or present, who would it be and what would you want to work on? Well, after listening to Ollie, I want to work with Ollie, Ollie Morris. We can <laughs> he make just, that happen. He totally, like, he really impressed me. And um, I don't ever get to get coached and by anybody. So Ollie, 
I, I want to be coached. I want to do a coaching session with him someday. That'd be great. All right. Well, I think he's on a plane to the US right now for snowshoes. So. <laughs> I wish that was close to me. Snowshoe is very far from me. <laughs> I'll, I'll send him a message. We'll put him on a plane. <laughs> put him to California. Yeah. All right. Deal. Okay. Last question. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Oh, it's going to be kind of super weird, but I water my lawn. And that is like a moment where I just take a little time for myself. I use that as just like a reset and I water my lawn. Almost like a sort of meditation in a way. Yeah. It's just like time by myself. And, um, I'm really, I, I love, I love like doing yard work and stuff. That's something I super enjoy. And so I take a lot of pride in my lawn. And, um, and we live in California, so it doesn't rain here ever. So I have to water it. I was going to say, you can tell you live somewhere different. My lawn is currently being watered for free. So I would, no some there. days I, some days I envy that because some days I'm like, geez, I'm so tired of watering. <laughs> Amazing. Well, it's been super interesting hearing about your career so far, still plenty more to give to the mountain bike world, no doubt. And plenty more to get from it. Um, if people want to find out more, where's the best place for them to head? I'm on Instagram at I choose bikes. And uh, my website is ichoosebikes.com. Pretty awesome. Simple. I choose bikes. Nice one. Yeah, we'll stick some links in the show notes so people can find those nice and easily. But yeah, thanks a lot. It's been really good fun chatting. And uh, yeah, look forward to yeah seeing where things go for you. Hope you enjoy the racing coming up for the rest of the season. And uh, yeah, take care. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, I really appreciate your time too. Thank you. Nice one. Cheers, Lee. Cheers. All right, that's it for this episode with Lee. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. A big thank you to Muckoff for supporting this episode of the show. They've just launched their first plastic-free bike cleaner, Punk Powder. And as a downtime listener, you can get 20% off that and the rest of the range by using the code DOWNTIME20 over on muckoff.com during September. Head there now and check out what they have to offer. It's nearly the end of the month, so don't miss out on your chance to stock up before winter really hits. Also, a massive thank you to Canyon. I've been really enjoying riding their Spectral 29er. It really is an incredible all-round bike that will put a huge smile on your face. If you're interested to find out more, then you can head over to canyon.com now. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, then you can get your hands on our full range of merch by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop with all proceeds going to help improve the podcast. If you're still listening and you've got a little bit of time, there's a few things you can do to help out. First, and most importantly, tell your rider mates about the podcast, because the more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this thing going. Share the episodes on your social media. It's a great way to generate a bit of buzz and spread the word. And also, if you've got a couple of spare minutes, then a review over on Apple Podcasts is still really helpful. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride. (laughs) 